nothing quite like a group of young children. They're like sand being poured out of a bottle. Once you tip it up, it's just going to keep running everywhere. And given the chance, they love to be loose and to explore and to search the territory. Probably the hardest job that we have as parents is in raising our children in the way that the Lord would have them raised. And one of the things that makes the raising of children so difficult is just the very nature of what they're like. Because they're really coming in all kinds of different shapes and sizes with all kinds of different mindsets. And yet, sometimes there are broad camps. There are those who will run through any door that's open. Sometimes never looking to see if it's open. But if they see a door, they want to run through it. They want to know what's on the other side. They can hardly wait. And then there are those who are even at a young age are not so sure they want to go through that door. They're a little timid. They're not for sure if they should go through it or not. Now, the thing about parenting is what you want to do as you parent our children at those young ages is to not kill what is unique to many of our children, and that is the desire to explore and to be adventurous. Sometimes we're so afraid they're going to go through those doors in life that will be difficult for them, and what they find on the other side will not be what it is they're really searching for, that we take the adventuresomeness out of their hearts and we replace it with kind of a fear, kind of a, an attitude of, well, if I don't know what that is, I'm not, I don't think I want to try it. It's kind of like, you know, they open up those books for the first time and they start looking at geometry and they go, you know, I just don't think I want to do this. Because it looks so scary. And so they just walk and go the other way. They have to be driven through that door, right? And sometimes when they're very young, they need to be encouraged to be more adventuresome, to go through the doors while not taking away from them that thought and logical process that we can go through to evaluate doors to see if we should go through them or not. Really, the only door in life that is without, uh, without reason to give us pause is the door that is opened by our Lord, right? If it's the door that Christ is opening, then we're safe to go through. But any other door, some of which we grow up trusting and some of which we grow up, unfortunately, not being able to trust, have to be evaluated before we walk through. Now, this passage of Scripture today is all about a door. It's the passage of Scripture that we read. What an amazing passage of Scripture it is in the book of Revelation as we open it to discern from it. And quite frankly, the best of my, the, that I can do with it is that the first and earliest chapters are the best. I love those stories about the seven churches, which I think are symbolic of the church of Jesus Christ in many ways, not just for those seven churches in Asia, but also for the churches in our day as well. And each and every one of them received a specific message meant for their church but also, I think, a specific message meant for the church of all time. Messages that can be appropriated and used by us. The words and the glory with which John writes are amazing when you just contemplate what they say. When you think about, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and take heed to the things which are written in it, for the time is near. And we, that time of nearness is all a relative term, of course. 
But at the same time, that nearness in the age in which we live is upon us now. On verse 6, it says that he has made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. He's made us to be a kingdom of priests. When we think about who we are, it's a big story. Now, for the children, oftentimes it's a very simple story. Who are you? And they give you their name. That's who they are. They have not yet learned to the point where they begin to evaluate a lot more than that. They can put pieces together. But just think about that right now. If I were to pull you out of the congregation and say, today, you're the subject of the message. We want to know all about you. You might start with your name. You might start with what you do for a living. You might start with the size family you're from. You might start with some memories from your past. You might start with, if you were really, really brave, the underlying parts of your personality that make you you. Who it is that you really are. What is the DNA of your makeup? If we take you and evaluate you and break you down, what kind of person are you really? Now, we see bits and pieces of you in church and in our communities, perhaps, or if we share a lot of life with you, we see a lot of different sides to your personality. And sometimes those parts in a person's life that we see are not the complete of completeness of that person, and yet they are descriptive about a part of who that person is, like Sometimes people introduce me after I've been around a group and they don't know me other than just Doug Miller and someone will say, hey, Doug's the preacher over at so-and-so. And sometimes people's mouths will dry open. And they'll go, that guy's a preacher? And you say, well, what does that say about you? You'll have to figure that one out. I'm not, I'm not the subject of the sermon this morning. But there can be many things about me that might shock people in regard to my also being a pastor. We are what we do in some sense or another, but we all are always more than what we do, right? We are this conglomeration of thoughts and actions and experiences blended in with our own mind and our own process of evaluating our world. So that the older we become, the more active, hopefully, we are in that process of continuing to become who we are meant to be because hopefully as we grow in who we are we're not satisfied with who we are at any particular time we're starting a series of sermons this morning about the topic of identity and this is going to be a a subject of sermons i'm not for sure how long this series is going to take just be patient you'll hear different preachers at times you'll hear different illustrations and we're going to continue to probe and analyze in depth who we are, not as individuals necessarily, but more so who we are as First Methodist Carrollton. When somebody asks who you are, you know what to tell them. When somebody asks you, who are the people at First Methodist Carrollton, do you know what to say? Do you know how to describe us? Or the words that you use, words that actually fit who we are and how we act? Or sometimes they more figment of um, your wanting us to be a certain kind of group of people or not. It's interesting because when we talk about identity, we're talking about who someone is or what a thing is. We're talking about the fact of being who or what a person or a thing is. We're trying to grasp the qualities, the beliefs, etc., 
that make up a particular person or a group that differentiates them from others. For instance, if I ask you if you want to go have a steak and you don't eat steak very often, you'd say, sure, let's go. Where are we going? And then if I said Golden Corral, you might go, uh, you know, I remember I have an appointment. Now, a lot of you would be fine with going to Golden Corral. I'm not talking about Golden Corral. But if I said we're going to Saltgrass, a lot of you would go, well, I'll need to cancel two appointments, but I'll be there. <laughs> Difference, right? If I talk to you about it and said, let's go shopping, and I was talking, let's pretend I was talking to a woman because it doesn't do much good to use shopping illustrations for men, right? I went the other day shopping, and I went the way I always did. I went to a shopping looking for a shirt. And as I always did, I found five or six. Now, I don't intend to go back shopping anytime soon for a shirt. That's the way men shop, right? We know what we're looking. We're looking to conquer. Go and find it, buy it, and come home. Uh, we don't really want to go and traipse around. But if I were to go to the women and say, let's go shopping, and they said, great, I'm, I, I can't wait to go with you. And then I said, then they say, where are we going? And I say, Walmart. And they'd go, I think I have an appointment or two. Because it's on the weekend, and I know better than to go to Walmart on the weekend. But if I said, let's go to the mall, then all of a sudden, I'll cancel those appointments. Let's go and just stroll and enjoy all the different kinds of stores, whether we buy anything or not. Now, I don't get why that's fun, but, uh, you know, it is for women, right, ladies? You like that shopping, many of you. I like Walmart, kind of, because I can get whatever I want there, and... Whatever. Lawnmower? Got it. Car park? Got it. Grapes? Got it. <laughs> Ice cream? I hear they have it. I don't know, but I hear they have it. There are a lot of things you can get at Walmart. I really like to go to Bed Bath & Beyond. Why? Because I can be assured that whatever I buy, I don't really need, but I really do want it. <laughs> They've got more stuff than any other store in the world, right? I love their stuff, and my wife does not like me to go there. Going out of town for a few days to go help Rachel. I might go to Bed Bath and Beyond while she's gone. <laughs> I have a part of my closet that's open. I could put some more stuff there. Something really useful. Like yesterday, Sally came walking out of a, a study and said, "What is this?" She found one of my little treasures that I bought. It was a rolled-up keypad for an iPad or a computer. It was new. It had never been out of the box. And she said, why did you buy this? And I said, I thought I might use it for my iPad, which she knows I don't use all that often. And she, well, you know what she said? Nothing. You know what she did? She just walked off. You know, because she knows me. She knows the weirdness and the quirkiness of my personality. She knows how I am about stuff. you got to have a lot of stuff. She washed my underwear yesterday. Thank you, Sally. <laughs> also, the other day when I bought shirts, I brought home three or four pairs of socks, which I don't have room for in my drawers. My drawers, you know that's where you keep socks, just to be sure you know where I'm going there. <laughs> you never know where some people are going with what you say, right? You have to be careful. Some people are ever ready to laugh. That's part of their identity. And some people are saying, what did he say? What did he say? Well, why were people laughing? Identity is incredibly 
important. And it's incredibly important for a church. It's also important because who we really are inside is usually who we really act like. I like to have fun. And sometimes it happens at church. That last part of all that, that wasn't really part of the sermon, but it seems like fun to me. So we, we went that direction. And some were going, yeah, but you know how much time you're using up of your sermon? I got plenty of time. When you think about identity and you go to this passage of Scripture, though, you find out something about people. Because Jesus said to the church at, in Philadelphia, I have an open door for you. It's the one church that he had no correction for. He loved this church. He appreciated it, although he described them as a church of little strength. He loved them for who they were. And because of that, he opened a door for them to go into their world. Now, they were located at a crossroads between two or three nations and where they met. And so it was a perfect place to disseminate the Greek language and Greek writings. It was also a perfect place to disseminate the gospel of Jesus Christ to the surrounding people, people who had never heard it before. It was ideal to be a mission outpost because so many people were around there who didn't really know the gospel story. And so he said to them, I'm opening a door for you. Now, who we think we are and who we know we are are tied closely together also to who we want to become because we know who we are. When you tie them all together, you get this picture of a person or a picture of a group or an entity known by a particular thing who are all related, and it's all related to what they do together and to how they respond, the decisions that they make. This, this idea, this open door, it becomes a focal point for this church. I believe it's a focal point for the church of Jesus Christ in the United States today. I believe there's a message to the church at Philadelphia is the message to all the whining churches in the world, and especially in the United States. And in the United States right now, if you could get a group of pastors together and turn on your whine meter and be a little mouth and them not know you were sitting there, you would hear a lot of whining. It's just so hard to be a pastor today. It's just so hard for churches to grow. So many people, so many people just don't care anything about the church. So many people have negative attitudes about the church. They don't get what the church is about. You hear the whine, the whine, the whine. And if you get together with a bunch of lay people from a lot of different churches, they'll say the same thing except a little different. Oftentimes they'll say, if only we could get the right pastor. If only we could have the right leaders. Or if only we could have more money. Or if only more people would come and see how wonderful we are, they'd want to stay with us. But that whine would be continual. Now, it's like the shoe salesman who went to Africa, the old story goes. And he saw that nobody had shoes, and he was glad to be there. I believe that we're in a land where half the people do not have Christ. And instead of complaining about who they are and how much they don't want the church, we should be thanking God for the open door that Christ has opened to them through the church of Jesus Christ in the country in which we live. 
We have more books about the faith than we've ever had before. We have more financial ability to reach out to people in so many different ways than we've ever had before. We're the richest nation the world has ever, ever seen. We have more knowledge about the scriptures because as a, as a nation and as an organized church across our nation, we have studied scripture so much that it's not just the pastors or the priests any longer who knows the script, but it's all the rest of the people who know it too. The doors are wide open. Wide open. Now the question becomes, who are we? Are we the kind of people to go through those doors or are we the kind of people to kind of walk up to the door and sit down and kind of look at the door frame and wonder what's behind the door? Is it going to be different? Are the people on the other side of that door outside of the church, will they cause me to be afraid? Will they sing differently? You know, sometimes a casual choice becomes a very important thing, and we, and we almost missed it. I almost missed it Friday night. We had the magical choir from University of Philipp Philippines here performing in our sanctuary. And quite frankly, because they were at our church and it was something here and because it was singing, I thought I, I should go probably. And I, I ran to Richard, and Richard assured me, Richard Ramos, that I needed to go. And so I met them here, and Sally was looking forward to coming, and Bonnie was here. And we knew the advertisement said mag mag madrigal uh, group of singers, which means basically without instrumentation, a choral group. But I came kind of going, I wonder how long it'll last. I wonder if they'll sing only in a Philippine language, or will I understand what they're saying? It was two hours of the best choral singing that I have heard in a long, long time. And I almost missed it for lack of not coming. And I didn't advertise it a lot because I written, didn't really know what a madrigal was. I looked it up after the fact. Bonnie tried to tell me, it'll be all right, come on. Sally really wanted to go but got caught doing something else and couldn't make it. Now, for me in singing, my daddy was a bass singer in the choir, a bass singer in the staff quartet when he was a young man. That's how he met my mother. So singing in my family was a big deal to my dad and to my mom both. My dad had one of those kind of bass voices that you, you love to hear rumble on a quartet song. If you all don't know what that is, that's four people singing. Kind of living gospel music, you know, like they used to do years ago. But this choral group had three, maybe four of the best young bass voices that I have ever heard. I could hear my daddy through their singing. And sometimes I could hear what daddy couldn't do. Two of them would blow you away. Literally, they were so gorgeous. In fact, if I were you, I'd get in my car and drive to San Antonio. That's where they're performing next. If you missed them, and if you like singing, they really entertained us. But I almost missed it. And then I wondered to myself, how many times does the church miss getting to be truly thrilled? Because we think we already know what something's going to be, or because we don't know what it's going to be, and so therefore we stay home. Because it might be something different. It might be an experience that requires something different from me or something that hasn't been required from me in a long time. And so we drag our feet a little bit. This text today about this church in Philadelphia reaches out to me in terms of the church and who we are. The opportunity to spread the ABCs of the gospel. 
is never more prevalent than it is today. There is a spiritual hungry amongst the young adults in our world, a hunger for purpose and meaning in life that the church has not been meeting or fulfilling. We've been talking about everything except sharing what really touches their lives. We, they're out there, and they are waiting for us to come to them. And we are waiting for them to come to us. And because of that, there's never a door through which we meet. But Christ comes and says, I am opening the door for you. But even then, when Christ opens the door for us, we have to go through that door, don't we? And that's not always easy to go out and tell somebody the ABCs of the faith. You know the old uh, formula that, that is quoted in a book called um, All the Places to Go by John Ortberg. He says, ABCs of the faith are abandon the old life, believe God's promises, and commit to a new journey. That's the ABCs. That's the easy way to tell the gospel story to someone else who doesn't know it. That door is what the door that Christ was opening in Philadelphia. I believe that's the door he's opening now. Now, you might ask yourself the question, as I've asked myself all week on and off, why don't we go through that door more often? And, I, you know, I was trying to come up with all kinds of psychological reasons why people don't want to go through those doors, and I could come up with a pretty long list. But I read something in that book of his that was better than any fancy thing I could wrote. It was written by Dr. Seuss. You know Dr. Seuss, don't you? Yeah, Dr. Seuss wrote a book called, the book was entitled, Oh, the Places You'll Go! Exclamation point. In that book, here's a little poem he writes. You have brains in your head. You have feet in your shoes. You can steer yourself in any direction you choose, dot, dot, dot. Oh, the places you will go, exclamation point, dot, dot, dot. Except when you don't. Because sometimes you won't. Dr. Seuss has said it well. Sometimes... There are amazing places we can go, but we don't because we won't. Now, why might we not want to go to those places, those doors that are different and sometimes changing for us? Why do we sometimes see an opportunity, but we're just not willing to walk through that open door that's already open for us? Maybe we're like the story, the characters in the Bible. Maybe we were like Abraham and Sarah, who didn't, who didn't, who thought they were too old. Maybe they were like Moses, who thought he was not capable and not ready to go through the door that God was opening for him to deliver the people. Maybe they thought that going through that door was too costly, like the rich young ruler who wouldn't go through. Or maybe they're like Jeremiah, who thought he was too young to really speak the prophetic word to the people, or too old, like I already mentioned, Abraham and Sarah were. Or maybe sometimes we just think we're not worthy, like Isaiah thought when he, the angel appeared to him and he felt like a man with unclean lips. Now, sometimes we think it's just too risky. It's just too different. We can't afford to make that choice. When we talk about who we are as a congregation, 
and who we're becoming as well at the same, in the same breath. We're talking about the church in the United States of America. It is hard to grow a congregation in, in the present world doing it the way we're trying to do it. Sometimes many of our congregations are stuck in the church of the past and don't want to move out into the church of the future. Some of the times we're stuck and satisfied with what we know rather than how much we're on the go. It's much more comfortable to learn than it is to take our learning and to apply it. It's much more difficult to risk an encounter with someone we don't know than it is to gather together with the other faithful for we already all think mostly alike. You see what I'm talking about? And that brings you back to the identity of each church being so important. What kind of identity do we have? Who do we think we are? Because you see, I believe it's the understanding of our identity, if it really is who we are, that gives us the courage to go up to those doors and to open them and to walk through. To see what's on the other side of that door, just like the children were so ready to go stampeding through it. Not worried about the cost, not worrying about what we'll find, just knowing that Christ opened that door should cause us as followers of Christ to want to walk through that door. Now, I know this congregation pretty well, a lot better now than I did four years ago when I arrived. I find you to be a warm and loving people, very caring for each other, very caring about the world in general, very willing to go to far-off places to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. I find you to be the kind of people who want to make a difference in people's lives who are waiting for some church to care about them. And because of that, I'm encouraged. And because of that, I believe that we are ready as a congregation to walk through those doors. You see, every Christian holds some traits in common. Every Christian and follower of Christ should be loving, should be forgiving, should be intentional about their life, and they should be teachable from the scriptures and from others who have walked farther on the journey than they have. Every Christian should be hopeful because Christ is all about hope for the future of others. And every Christian should be confident that whatever life brings to them, be the, wa be the waters flooding our land, we still are confident that God is with us. Every Christian should strive to be whole in body and mind and soul and spirit as well. Every Christian should be holy, as in seeking the life through Christ and following in his way, of having a heart perfected by love for God and for others. When I look at you, I see that kind of people. I see a people who are loving and forgiving all in the same breath, people who are ready and able to make a difference when they walk through the doors that Christ has opened for them. I believe that though the church be hesitant out of fear of change, the church is also willing to go beyond the fear and open that door. Now I agree that I believe that partly because of who I am. 
I'm a hopeful person. I really never saw anything that I thought I couldn't do if I really wanted to do it. That was a little dangerous. I've told you the stories before about how that mindset got me into where I, the trouble I got into a lot of times. But you know what? It's also that mindset that helped me become who God intended me to become. Because whenever I first heard God calling me, I said, no, I don't want that. And I ran away for a number of years. When I first heard God calling me to be a pastor, I said, I'm too old. I was 26. How could I possibly have the time to become a pastor? I, I'd gotten out of college already. I'd have to go back. I'd have to go to seminary. And besides that, I was a small country boy. I loved Farmersville. It's a beautiful spot of uncared for area. <laughs> it was kind of like most small towns. It was old and not kept up very well. There wasn't a big tax base. There was all the things wrong with it. But to me, that was heaven. And I knew if I became a Methodist preacher, the first thing they wanted to do is take you out of heaven and start moving you around, right? And they proved it to me early on. The first, first year they sent Sally and I to Kalisburg, Westview, and Gordonville on weekends. We'd go up there and spend every weekend. But they paid us, man, $200 a month. It was only a 65-mile drive. But you know, after I'd heard for sure that Christ was holding the door for me open to do that, I didn't believe there was any way that I couldn't go to Kalisburg, even though I didn't even know where it was. And the next year, after one year, where things were really starting to roll where we were, we went to Ector and Mulberry and Ravenna, because after all, that's what they do in the Methodist church. If you can chew bubble gum and walk, they see if you can also find a new town. So they sent me, and we stayed there two years. And then, you know, I finished seminary finally. I, gosh, six or seven years were finally over. I was all of 33. I remember thinking, and I think I've said it before, that's the age Jesus was crucified, right? Oops. They sent us to Denison. We stayed a year and a half, and then we went to Salina. You know what Salina was? A carbon copy of Farmersville. They never had a pastor that stayed longer than two years. We stayed there five and a half years. It was glorious. And then, of course, you know, DSs are DSs, and they moved us to Bonham, Texas. Everywhere I went, as long as Christ was opening the door, I found people in churches that he loved. I found people who were loving and forgiving. It was just a matter of finding together the doors that were open for each congregation and then being willing to walk through them. And every one of them, God blessed. As he is blessing us even now. And you may be saying, yeah, but I don't think we got more people than we used to have. doesn't matter. If we're being faithful to what God has called us to do and walking through the door, God will bring more people. Our job is to walk through that open door and to share the ABCs of the gospel with the people of our world. Father God, I thank you for these people who are loving and forgiving. And Lord, we're going to talk about more of that next week, how loving and forgiving go together so much and they're so strongly attached that you can hardly speak of one without speaking of the other. As we lean into that and uncover and unwrap and make clear to ourselves as a whole 
and to the world in which we live, that we are these loving, forgiving people. Pour your spirit upon us that we might share the gospel with those who are searching for meaning in their life outside these doors when they're just waiting for us to come. Make us into that people who are lined up at the door and ready to go through. For it's in Christ's name we pray.